Be More Human by Graham Brown. Some people don't get it. Some people will never get it. But if there's one thing I've learned in my rather lengthy career now, being almost 50 years old, is that life is too short to waste on those people that don't get it. You know, you only have one life to give, so don't give all that energy to the non-believers. You can't convert them. What you should do, and the purpose of this podcast today, is focus on those who are surrounded by the non-believers and give them ammunition to make change. Because in many ways, there are people out there who want to make change, but they're banging their head against the wall because they're the 10% in the organizations who are struggling with this sort of daily battle against the resistance. And a good example of this is I read in the Financial Times, and I'll read it to you verbatim. Last week, a well-known London council sent its staff an arresting bit of news. It's okay to smoke at work. To be more precise, Hammersmith and Fulham Council, which is, by the way, where I used to have my old office, said it was okay for employees to smoke if they were working at home, as many have been thanks to COVID-19. Now, it beggars belief, really, that the council can send out such a, an email circular to its employees. And it probably, whilst it's quite amusing reading this now, the less amusing part is just the mindset that goes behind it. Because there's this mindset that work from home is the office, but at home. And that's the point. What I wanted to talk about today was it isn't work from home, isn't the office, but at home. So what we're seeing now is the inherited mindset transplanted into a new era and it, it's completely out of place it's completely you know anomalous with the idea of a location independent business the fact that we have what is effectively legal frameworks that exist for offices and workplaces that aren't really effective now that you're working in your own home so what's going on well I'm just going to read some of this Financial Times article out to you so we can pick out some of the data points as well. I'll talk a little bit about Microsoft, Twitter, and some other articles that have popped up in recent days about work from home, um, which is really sort of identifying this sort of conflict of mindsets going on. And when I started out talking about not converting the laggards effectively, then not worth our time is really this message is aimed at the change makers who understand that this mindset doesn't work, but they need ammunition to be able to go out there and feel confident that what they're thinking and what they're feeling are the right things to think and feel. So from the Financial Times, a poll of more than 750 European employers published last week showed 41% have plans to make it easier for staff to keep working remotely once offices open, reopen. Which is interesting that, what do they really mean by that? Is that they understand that work from home isn't going away, but the problem is, is this idea of work from home. You know, what has happened is, is the cat has been let out of the bag. The genie has uncorked the bottle and it's not going back in. And what's happened is, is we've questioned the whole idea of an office in the first place. Because for years and years, that's all there ever was. And then when it wasn't there, we thought, well, actually, do we really need it? But what's happened is, is, Employers like Hammersmith and Fulham Council have tried to maintain effectively what is the office, but in the remote environment. And this is what I call the tail wagging the dog. What I mean by that is that Hammersmith and Fulham, like so many organizations and employers now, 
of confusing the solution with the problem. And the solution is the office. And the problem is, is how do you pull resources efficiently in one place? And the office is the solution to that problem. Because if you can pull a team of lawyers or you can pull a secretary, Paul, or you can pull a photocopier and a printer, a security into one place, meeting rooms, then it's more efficient to do that. And because it's more efficient to do that, you can make efficiency savings and be more profitable than your competition. So what's happened here is that if we view the problem of business being is how can we be more efficient and the solution being an office, we have to be able to discern between the two that the office isn't the raison d'etre of business. The office is simply a solution to a problem that we have in business. And therefore, if the problem we have in business changes, the solution must change as well. It's the equivalence of, and if you were to think about it, Let's say you were playing cricket. Now, the problem that you have playing cr cricket as a batsman, and you can transplant cricket with baseball, is you have the pitcher, the bowler, throwing a ball very fast at you. You need some instrument to hit the ball. It's not going to be your hands or your feet. And a tennis racket won't do. You need a hard wood bat. So in cricket, obviously, you've got the cricket bat. And in baseball, you've got the baseball bat. And these are pretty tough items. They can withstand a heavy, hard ball being thrown at it at like 100 kilometers an hour. You know, if you, that ball hit you in the head, it could kill you. Batsmen in both baseball and cricket wear helmets. So the solution to that problem has to reflect the physics of the problem. You know, if you were playing ice hockey, which effectively has a similar need, which is how do you project this puck at this target, the goal, the net, and how do you then as the, what do they call it, the net guard, the goalkeeper, protect against that. Well, the ice hockey stick is very different shape to a cricket bat and a baseball bat, even though it performs a similar function because the ball thrown at it is thrown at it in a different way. I mean, the, the cricket ball and an ice hockey puck are very different and they move in a different way in a different shape and different mass and different compositions. So therefore the bat you need, the stick you need has to be different. So let's say you were playing cricket or baseball. Your solution is fine tuned to the problem. It, it, I, I imagine the original cricket bats as were the original baseball bats were quite different and they've sort of evolved over time. You, you can see that with golf clubs as an example. The original woods were actually made out of wood. But over time, with new materials and new science and new technologies, they evolved the solution to become more and more effective. A golf club now, a driver, can easily hit in excess of 300 yards. But that, you know, you go back to the late 80s, for example, that was tough, right? You know, you can only hit 300 yards if you were like a pro. But now amateurs can smash out 300 yards if they hit the ball, right, with a good club because of the material, because the materials evolved so effectively as a solution. But now if you were to take that golf club, which is a perfect solution, to that problem and then take it to cricket is pretty damn useless. It's so highly trained and specific to the problem that if you change the problem, the solution becomes useless. In Japan, in the mobile industry, 
they talk about this as the Galapagos phenomenon. Now, the Galapagos Islands lie off the west coast of Chile, South America. And famously, the Galapagos Islands were one of the islands that Charles Darwin visited on his beagle, his voyage, where he noticed these sort of very highly distinct life forms on the Galapagos Islands, like the blue-footed booby bird and those iguanas that swim in the sea, the dodos, all those kind of very, very specific solutions to the problem of evolution in that landscape. Now, that idea has been inherited by critics in Japan when they're talking about the Japanese mobile phone industry, which was, you know, why was it that Japan was a world leader in the mid to late 90s in mobile internet and mobile when I was there? You know, it had the world's first internet on the mobile phone, the world's first app store in the late 90s, long before Google and Apple got in on the act. Why was it that they went from world leader to follower? Why was it that the Japanese mobile phones of the late 90s were world leaders and within 10 years they become antiquated? And it's what they call the Galapagos phenomenon in Japan, which was this lack of diversity of thought, which meant with the ideas and the solutions were so highly specific to the problem that when the problem changed, these solutions were rendered useless. So a great example is the mobile phone, you know, made by companies like Mitsubishi and Sony, Panasonic, Toshiba even made mobile phones. That when the industry changed and moved towards software and services, and had to become a global industry. It was so brittle, so f inflexible that it couldn't adapt to change. So this very small change in the physics of the mobile industry rendered a whole generation of brands useless. And it's like taking a golf club to a cricket match and trying to play cricket because it's so highly tuned to whacking out a golf ball 300 plus yards, it would be useless against a cricket ball. Even though effectively it's doing the same thing. And this is where we are today. That if we change the physics of our business from efficiency to something else, then the solutions become useless. And what we need to be able to do is be able to separate solutions from problems. So when we look at the office, for example, what many people see is the problem that how do we recreate this in a world where we're not physically interacting like we used to? How do we recreate this when everybody's working from home? That's they're looking at the, Office is the problem, as opposed to the solution. And it's like sort of turning up at a tennis match with a cricket bat and saying, well, you know, you've got a cricket bat and I've got a cricket bat and you've got a tennis ball. But um, quite clearly, this is pretty hard and not working. So let's, um, maybe we can play this a little bit differently. And that's kind of what's happening now. It's what psychologists call functional fixedness. It's a bias. I talk about it in my human communication playbook. Functional fixedness is a bias which blinds us to what things can be. We get lost on the function based on what it is. An example of this, there's a great psychological case study. It's more of a social experiment, really. It's called the barometer challenge. And in this barometer challenge, what it is, is I forget the details, but I'll paraphrase it. 
a university professor is marking exams of his students. And one of the students puts in a very strange answer to a question. And the question that all the students are asked are, how do you measure the height of a building using only a barometer? Now, the perfect answer, given that this was a physics question, is that the height of a building, so let's assume this building is 100 meters high, the air pressure at 100 meters and the air pressure at sea level are different. So if you took a barometer and took the reading at level one, ground floor, sea level, and then you took a reading at the top, penthouse, 100th floor, what you're effectively doing is you're getting a different air pressure reading. And therefore you can extrapolate that data based on known fact and you can estimate the height of the building. It's very simple. That's the perfect answer. But one student gave a different answer, which was he said, what you could do is you could go to the top of the building, tie a rope to the barometer, plumb the rope with the barometer weight on the end of it down to the bottom of the building, and then mark the length of the rope. And from that, discern the height of the building. Now, technically, it's correct. And this student gave a few more answers as well, which was, for example, you could sell the barometer, you could give it to the security guard and sell the barometer to them in return for information. And the information would be asking the security guard what the height of the building was, because they should know roughly. Again, in traditional education, this would be wrong because it's not the perfect answer, but it works. In theory, it works. What, what are we testing? Are we testing the perfection or whether or not the solution works? And functional fixedness means that we can only accept perfect solutions. That it has to be one way because it's always been that way. And the problem with functional fixedness is whilst it helps us predict what the future may be, it only works when the future is actually like the past, when the future is an extension of the past. Nobody could predict COVID-19. Some people did, but they were the minority and nobody really took them seriously at the time. Otherwise we wouldn't be where we were or are today. There's a great case study. I talk about it in my human community playbook about Boeing. Now, Boeing had a pretty torrid year in 2019 and 2018. The one of the reasons was is that their 737 MAX, 787 MAX, sorry, plane crashed twice. And if you go back sort of 30 or 40 years, that wouldn't have been such a big deal. I know obviously any plane crash is a big deal, but it wouldn't have been a big deal in terms of the statistics because planes did crash. But it was extremely rare. You know, plane travel had become so safe that the Boeing engineers, when they designed the 787 MAX, they actually bypassed many of the safety functions that had been built in over the years because they saved money and maybe there were other reasons as well. But the point being is that they had predicted the future based on the past, that the future would be like today, only just more of it. And because of that, they couldn't foresee the black swan events, these sort of disruptive changes that do happen. And so when there were problems, they hadn't built in flexibility into the model to account for them. And that's why they had two crashes. And that will be irreparable damage to the Boeing brand for generations.
So functional fixedness is this psychological bias that, for example, planes won't crash because they don't crash, or that we use cricket bats to hit balls. Therefore, if we change the game, we still use cricket bats. And it's what we're seeing now with work from home. Functional fixedness. It's like the barometer challenge. We can only reward the solution that's perfect as opposed to the one that's optimal. And this is really reflected in a lot of these news stories coming out now. So the Financial Times article, the headline was the looming legal minefield of working from home. So what effectively is happening is an employer is trying to enforce employment policies in somebody's own home. This is the one about the smoking. And what is fundamentally wrong with that is that the policies that existed before work from home existed because employees used to travel to an office where they were in the due care of the employer. So for example, if you traveled from your office to a building, because that's where you were expected to work and your employer, for example, didn't make sure that building was safe or there was asbestos in the ceiling or whatever it may be, didn't provide proper you know, ventilation when there was some issue with fumes in the building, whatever it may be. In days gone by, that was an issue. So it made sense that we created laws to ensure good behavior. And you even go back earlier, it would have been the factories. We couldn't expect the market simply to self-regulate because markets don't self-regulate. You know, my forebears, my great-great-aunts worked in factories. They worked in cotton mills, effectively, in Glasgow as, you know, working mechanical looms. And I remember them saying, or I don't remember it, but I remember the secondhand stories from my grandmother. She would say that they would joke about employees effectively, you know, young girls who would be teenagers who left school at 14, forced to leave school at 14 and go and work in these factories. They would joke about somebody losing their fingers in the machine. And then, you know, these, these fingers would sort of turn up further down the production line. And they're sort of very dark, macabre humor that you needed to survive in those factories effectively. But that's the point is that when you have that kind of situation where the employee has no control over the environment. They don't determine the machines. They don't determine the work. They don't determine how they're going to sit, where they're going to eat, anything like that. So it makes sense that the employer took due care in the employee's you know, welfare whilst they were there. That makes sense. However, if I choose to work from home and if my employer expects it now, why then do we need those kind of laws in my house? It doesn't make sense. And why, even though it doesn't make sense, people are functionally fixed on this idea that we need to have this kind of regulation. Because actually, the issue is less about due care for employees and more about control. And this is the fundamental underlying aspect of why work from home isn't the office, but at home. And ultimately, we should stop talking about work from home. We need to be talking about work from anywhere. Because why does it matter if I'm at home? Why do I need to be at home? Why can't I be on a tropical island somewhere? I'm sure when travel permits. But why not? Why can't I be in a coffee shop? Why can't I be in Bali or Chiang Mai doing my work? Why do I need to be here? Now, Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey said way back in May that staff could continue working from home as long as they see fit. 
And then um, we have all sort of the experts piping up because they realize actually simply working outside the office means everything changes. It's not just a case of taking the office, but sticking it at home. All the sort of power structures need to change as well. A union leader in the UK said that the world of work has changed. And recently castigated, chastised the, the government or the civil servants in the government who were trying to get, or sorry, it was ministers trying to get civil servants to get back to their desks. Which is just unbelievable, really. You know, because at the one hand, many of these civil servants are going to be going back to their desks to draw up plans to fight COVID. And yet by the fact that they're going back to their desks, it's just going to make it worse. You know, we've had this idea of telecommuting for many, many years. Alvin Toffler, who wrote the book Future Shock, and then also The Third Wave, talked about telecommuting from what he called electronic cottages, which I think is really cute as an idea. But I like the idea of cottage because it is evocative. It's not just sort of a quaint thatched building that you see in the Cotswolds in England. Something that maybe Wordsworth would live in. Or Virginia Woolf maybe, out in the sticks. Now a cottage is quite an important word because it's a cottage industries. And cottage industries were effectively the original self-employments. You know, you think about them and talk about it in my book, How to Thrive in the Fourth Industrial Revolution. Is that when the Industrial Revolution hit England, the people that were hit the hardest weren't the poor, the unskilled, but it was the skilled weavers. You know, going back to my forebears who came from places like Paisley in Scotland, in Glasgow. They were the original cottage industries because if you were a weaver, let's say 15th, 16th, 17th century, that's about as good a job as you could get without being a lord or some priest. You know, you, if you weren't born into nobility, then the best job you could hope for was being a weaver. And really, you could only have that job if your dad was a weaver. And the great thing about weavers was they owned land, so they could have a small holding. If you were a weaver, you could maintain your own plants, your vegetables, you could grow your own food, you could have crops, you could have animals. And you could work three days a week. You could farm your land for two to three days a week, and then you could spend the rest of it just lying around drinking. And that's what a lot of people did in the 15th and 16th centuries lying around drinking. You know, before the coffee shops came along, a lot of peasants spend their days drunk. Interestingly, because a bit of a backstory here, that we all drink water, we, we have to have water to survive. But there are only two ways that you can cure water in medieval ages and one was to boil it and add tea which is what they did in the east and the other way was to cure it by putting alcohol in it so if you were a medieval peasant the only way you could actually get your liquid was drinking beer and wine every day. I know it sounds like a terrible existence, but that's how it was. I mean, you know, you look at, for example, the uh, life on a ship. You know, you can't have fresh water on a ship. So what? You know, that's the reason why so many naval people back in the day, pirates and Navy, drunk rum. Because it was the only way to consume water in a safe way. I digress. I was talking about cottages. 
But it's not a bad lifestyle. I mean, the point being is that really you are your own boss, whether you decide to lie around on the hillock drunk all day, tend your plants or weave baskets, you manage your own lifestyle. And that was one of the last great generations of self-employment. A lot of people now say, oh, you know, loads of people are self-employed today. But as a percentage, much less people, much fewer, I should say, people are self-employed today than they were 300, 400 years ago, when most people were self-employed, working out of cottage industries if they were. Before the Industrial Revolution, the Industrial Revolution created effectively bonded slavery for a lot of people, and especially a lot of skilled people. I mean, there were serfs before the Industrial Revolution, certainly. But a whole generation of people got sucked in. You know, highly skilled, highly educated people got sucked into factories. And, you know, they had that very crappy existence that, you know, my great-great-great-aunts had, where they would leave school at 14, and they would sleep on the factory floors, and they would have all kinds of, you know, respiratory diseases, from working in these terrible, terrible conditions. And so that's why we needed to enforce employer regulations. Because if they didn't do it, these people would have been unprotected. Even though many were, it could have been a lot worse. And it took hundreds of years before those people got organized into unions and started demanding better working conditions. But now I'm working from home. It doesn't make sense. If I look at my setup now, I'm in the studio of my house. I have an extra room in this house. Is a, in this room is a sofa and a desk and chest of drawers, bookshelf, computers, everything I bought. You know, if I was working for another company, I wouldn't want them to buy me that stuff. I, I want them to give me an allowance to buy it, surely. But I don't want them to furni furnish my room because it's not theirs. It's mine. It's my room. So my room, my rules. If we allow people to extend the office into home, we also lose our homes. It just becomes an extension. Effectively, what we're doing is we are subsidizing our businesses. And there should be a clear separation. It doesn't, it's not healthy for the business and it's not healthy for the employee either. There was a, a, a survey of a Chinese firm called Sea Trip, which was a travel agency, and they surveyed a uh, thousand people. And this was sort of earlier on. So obviously China was a bit earlier in its work from home experiment. So they had a lot longer to be able to measure the productivity gains. What was really interesting was this, the data from this sea trip case study showed that our, after working from home, employees reported a 13% increase in productivity and a 50% reduction in staff turnover. Now, C-Trip was a call center, a booking center. And part of the work from home experiment is that everybody had to have their own room in the house where they could shut out distractions and they could work there. And what they found was is that even though people work 13% longer, Half of the workforce returned to the office by choice, citing social isolation and loneliness. And a lot of experts have now sort of questioned just how effective work from home is. There was a Stanford economist, Nicholas Bloom, who said that work from home would be a productivity disaster. And what's interesting here is I completely agree. I think work from home will be a productivity disaster. And the reason is, is that it's work from home. 
Now, we've got to stop thinking about work from home. We've got to stop thinking about work as a place we go to, but what we do. We shouldn't be thinking about work from home. We should be thinking about work from anywhere. So if we're talking about work from home, we're talking about work in the context of the rules of the game, which were efficiency. That's like turning up with a baseball bat to ice hockey again. Because that rule has changed. The game and the way of winning the game has changed because we've reached peak efficiency, which basically meant the returns for more efficiency in our process are actually smaller than productivity gains elsewhere. And those productivity gains are not found in squeezing out more efficiency because we can give that to algorithms and we can give it to machines who will do all the management and heavy lifting for us. Yet what machines can't do is be more human. And those are where the gains are. Because as a CEO, if I'm sending you an email apologizing for COVID-19 or one of those empathy emails that I get from, for example, a large hotel chain very recently, starts with dear customer and signed by the CEO. The point being is that the cost of uncaring is too high today for companies to get away with that. We need companies who, like Tony Fernandez, CEO of AirAsia, say, hi, and then are honest in their empathy email, not signed by the CEO, not saying dear customer, but saying lots of love, Tony. We need CEOs like that who understand that the return on being more efficient is actually probably negative right now, but the return on being more authentic and more human is higher than ever. We need CEOs who lead by example and dare to be vulnerable. And the way we can do that is stop talking about work from home. Because all people are thinking about is productivity, efficiency, the hours that we're working, work-life balance. And the only way that they can instill a culture of that is they disempower everybody such that the employer is the only one that can make decisions about that. Right down to whether or not you can smoke at your desk. But the real essence of the location-independent business, the real essence of work from anywhere, the real essence of digital transformation of communication is that it's not work from home. That it is exactly what Alvin Toffler talked about, electronic cottages. We all should be operating cottage industries. We should all be operating our own electronic cottages with our furniture, our rules. That worked in the pre-industrial era. You could live a very good life. You didn't need to tell a weaver what his hours were. He did it himself. He didn't make baskets. He didn't get paid. His family didn't eat. He understood. What happens is, is when you remove people from data, when you remove them from their meaning to the extent that they don't understand what impact they have on the end goal, then what happens is, is you have to supplant that. You have to fill the vacuum with policy or worse still, a shiny ball pit or to gamify work gamify because what it suggests is that you're so immature you're such a child that you can't find any meaning in your work you have to treat it like a game i mean if that isn't treating people like children i don't know what is gamification of work the gamification of work is a byproduct of an era where we have divorced people from meaning People don't want gimmicks. People want meaningful work. So give it to them. And we can start by treating people with maturity. And that starts with us. That starts with us understanding that the future of work isn't work from the office, but at home, but very different. It's like now we've gone from playing cricket to playing football. 
If you turn up on a football field with a large wooden bat, you will be kicked off. The police will come and arrest you. It doesn't work. But that's where we are now. We've got teams turning up with bats saying, well, we need it to hit the ball. What we need are the digitally native teams who say, no, I, I, I'm, I've never played this cricket game before. But let me tell you this, it's like in football, we don't use bats, we kick the ball. Nothing that could be used as a weapon is allowed on the pitch, right? That's what we need. These are the digitally native companies. Twitter are that. You know, good for Jack Dorsey and Twitter for taking the lead, which would have been, in many ways, an unpopular decision. It would have been somehow not the right thing to do by many people. But that's the point of leadership. Leadership isn't a popularity contest. Leadership is about taking people where they need to go as opposed to where they want to go. Without leaders, we never would have had change in societal attitudes. Women never would have got the vote. Homosexuality would have never become accepted. Black people will never had equal rights. If it wasn't for leaders who stood up and did something which was at the time unpopular. And that's what Twitter CEO is doing as well. He's standing up and saying, look, we're going to work from home. He used those words forever. And some people are going to complain. The people that are going to complain are the ones that are functionally fixed to the idea of what work should be. They're the ones that think, oh, the answer has to be perfect. That's what a barometer does. That's the only thing a barometer can do. But the cost of doing that is also the culture that is blindsided to failure. Like, for example, Boeing. What's going to happen is it won't be the companies that were born in the work from office era that adapt and evolve best in the new era of work. Because it's like saying taking a, a cricket team and then training them to play football. But even though maybe their cardio and fitness levels and reaction speeds are good, and maybe they are better than the average person at playing football for those reasons. They maybe adapt. And there are, I mean, there are extremely rare cases of cricketers who did play football, and I think of from my era, Ian Botham, which will be random for a lot of people. But there were, I mean, they were exception. And there were sort of people who have crossed codes in sport as well. There's been some in rugby and certainly there have been some in racing, but it's extremely rare. I mean, it's extremely rare to cross such a big code from say, hitting a ball with a stick to playing football. You certainly wouldn't be world number one. So it's gonna be those companies that are digitally native that get it. And if you wanna see the answers, well, the answers are going to emerge next year. We won't return to normal. We won't return to how things were before, but we will return to a rhythm and people will find their feet in the rhythm. And what will happen is, is the companies that are adapted best to change are the ones that rise to the top fastest. Those that are highly spe specific and adapted to the old model, the Galapagos model, are the ones that will suffer. They'll try and optimize their way to a better future, which will fail. What they'll need is disruptive thinking, exponential, not incremental thinking. They need to cross the threshold and say, look, office is not the problem we're trying to solve here, guys. Look, if we don't need an office, we don't need an office. So let's stop building processes around the office. Let's stop building communications around the office. Let's build communications and processes around the problem, which is how do we communicate more effectively? How do we communicate more authentically? And that's why the future of work won't be optimal. It, sorry, won't be perfect. It will be optimal. The future of communications won't be perfect. It will be optimal. And we have to see all of this. We have to see work not as an operational challenge. We've got to see it as a communications challenge.
So when I look at all these stories coming out about the long-term impact of COVID-19 on our mental health, what we're really seeing is a very similar pattern emerge to the first industrial revolution where, you know, the lifestyles of some of the highest skilled people were decimated when they were moved from being cottage industry to factory workers. Because it is going to happen. Companies will enforce the factory mindset onto people's homes. You will start to see it. You will start to see it. We're already seeing it now. Companies like Facebook, for example, will track your location to ensure that your pay, your salary is commensurate to the location that you've declared as your residence. Let me unpack that a little bit. What they're basically saying is that we'll pay you for where you live. Because obviously, if you live in a place like San Francisco, as opposed to Baltimore or even Bali, we need to pay you more. And therefore, if you're claiming you live in San Francisco, but you're actually living in Bali, and that's now showing up on your Facebook app, Facebook has a problem with that. And they've even said there'll be severe penalties, which is ironic because they are a digitally native company, but they're enforcing industrial era policies onto their people. What they should be saying is it doesn't matter where you work. It doesn't matter. Why, why should we even pay 10 times for the same skills? And the reason is, is because once you start asking that what if question, everything starts falling apart. Mental health, it's effectively just the dissonance in the model. Because if you start saying, well, if I have a developer in Bali and a developer in Singapore and they're equally skilled, why should I pay the guy in Singapore five times as much? Why should I pay the guy in Silicon Valley 10 times as much if they're doing the same work? Because they're not coming to the office anymore. We all have Zoom. We all have Google Meet. We can all communicate by Slack. Why does it matter? The reason it matters is because there's a lot of people scared of what will happen if you now break down the walls. Because effectively, you, what you're saying is, well, what if I don't need to have an office here in San Francisco anymore? That means I don't need people in San Francisco anymore. What does that mean? Well, if I don't need people in San Francisco anymore, I can hire them in Bali, which is great for people in Bali. Now they can earn twice as much. But it also, the arbitrage will level out the market, which will effectively push down salaries in expensive places and push up salaries in inexpensive places. Because why should you, as an employee, live in San Francisco and have a worse quality of life when you could be in Bali? Well, the reason is, is that nobody's asking that what-if question because they think they need to be in San Francisco and they're going to get paid more for it. But the reality is, is if that company now embraces work from anywhere rather than work from home, what they've also done by building a location-independent business is they've decoupled themselves from the old world and the physics that went with it. It's like turning up to a football game without a baseball bat. I don't need it anymore. Ah, oh, that was really annoying, that baseball bat. I was trying to play football with this baseball bat. It's just getting in the way. I couldn't run fast. I couldn't get involved in tackles. And sometimes I'll fall over it. That's the office, guys. Now, if you throw that away, then no office, no travel, no problem. Now, it's a very idealistic vision of the future. It will take time. It may take a generation. It may take 30 years to manifest and realize. But like the internet, it didn't happen overnight. The internet happened, really, kicked off consumer world in the mid-90s. It's 25 years on. And 25 years on, we're still only 
really adapting to the internet. So what I'm saying is that even though it's easy for us to buy everything online, order food online, we still have stores. We still have, you know, there still are in the world offline travel agents on high streets. They exist, unbelievably. So 25 years on, they're still there. There still will be a place for that. People still will want face-to-face connections. People still will want offline shared experiences where they can sit and eat together. That won't go away. And there still will be a need for an office, but it won't be the office as we know it. It won't be where work happens. The office will be, in my theory, more like a hotel, a place to check in, meet people, have meetings, catch up, events maybe but it won't be work. And that's the key. Work isn't a place we go. Work is what we do. If we can embrace that, we can also embrace what the future may be. We've got to throw away the baseball bats and the cricket bats because it's holding us back. I'm just curious to see what comes next. What's going to happen is a lot of friction and you're going to see it reflected in For example, these articles about legal minefields and mental health, these are all byproducts of dissonance where the model and the reality are out of sync. So my prediction is, is for the next year, you're going to see some horror stories. You're going to see some horrific cases, legal blowups, mental health blowups. And then we have to ask ourselves why. And people will say, oh, it's work from home. And I say, I agree with you. It is work from home, but I don't agree with you as to why it's like this. You say it's work from home. I say it's because of work from home. You call it work from anywhere. It's a very different reality. <laughs>